Well, turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 4. Revelation 1, we're going to be reading verses 4 through 8. Last week, we looked at the first three verses of Revelation, labeled the prologue in the ESV. Um, And that sermon functioned as an orientation to the book of Revelation. Um, And so if you haven't heard that message, I would encourage you to listen to it, not because it is a beautiful piece of oratory or anything like that. It's simply an orientation to my approach to Revelation in this series, so I think it would be helpful uh, for us to be on the same page. Um, In that passage, we see God giving a disclosure, a perspective on reality, giving that to an angel who then gives it to John, who writes an account of this vision or disclosure and sends it to these seven communities of believers in Asia Minor. We see this chain link image of God giving this disclosure to Jesus, who gives it to an angel, who gives it to John. And this revelation, this uncovering, if you will, isn't a set of predictions about far distant future events, but is God's perspective on past, present, and future reality. And it is meant to bolster the faith and obedience of real Christians facing persecution at this point in the first century in the Roman Empire. And so our reading of Revelation is not going to be uh, a reading that sees it as a set of predictions about distant future events, but as a pastoral work that's meant to encourage our hearts and help us endure with faith today. So our passage continues the introduction to Revelation, and so we'll be reading verses 4 through 8. And as you are able, friends, would you now stand for the reading of God's Word? John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, you may be seated. And now, friends, let us pray. Lord, give us vision, eyes to see. Lord, we see the realities of our world week after week and fret and worry and fear. But may the book of Revelation give us your eyes, 
eyes that see in the midst of all of that God's victory, your victory, Jesus. Give us clear vision so that we can interpret the events of our lives and of this world differently, so that we can see your agency in all of it. Please make us more like you as we gaze further upon you this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So what I'd like to do this morning is spend the bulk of our time walking through this passage verse by verse. In this passage, which functions as a kind of greeting, uh, framing this document as a letter, which is very unique in a text like this, we see the human sender and the human recipients. We see a common salutation in letters of this period, um, but we see this threefold divine origin, three entities mentioned from whom come grace and peace. And then we see these titles attributed to Jesus Christ, the focal person or agent in the book of Revelation. A number of titles that take us back to the Old Testament, titles that are full of associations and various images for these readers. Uh, We then get a doxology, a beautiful doxology, and what seems to be a kind of responsive reading Amen, even so, amen. And there's some more quotations of the Old Testament. And then finally, an I am statement to close the passage. So this continues uh, the thought from the prologue, the introduction to the book of Revelation. Um, But I think it is worth our time looking at just these five verses. So let's dive right in. In verse 4, we read, John to the seven assemblies of believers which are in Asia. And let me take each detail in turn. As I said last week, there are some who think that the John here is John the Gospel writer, John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee. Um, But there's no explicit mention in the book of Revelation that it is that John who is receiving this vision. It's more likely that John, which was a very common name in antiquity, Uh, functioned as a kind of pastoral supervisor of these seven churches in Asia Minor, almost like a proto-bishop. You'd see that office later on. Maybe like Paul establishing churches and exercising care over a lot of communities. John is functioning in that way, but he is writing from exile here, as we will learn later on. So John, the human sender to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, this is not Asia, the continent, as we think of today, but this is shorthand for Asia Minor, which was a province, a legal province in the Roman Empire. Now, you can think today of Western Turkey. And so in the biblical period, think of Laodicea, think of Ephesus, Hierapolis, Colossae, places like that. And seven is a recurring number in the book of Revelation. It's a very symbolic number. I do think this text was addressed at seven literal churches, but the number seven also connotes a completion, comprehensiveness. 
And so many early Christians, uh, the Apostolic Fathers, talk about this being addressed to the universal church, not just applying to these seven churches in Asia Minor in the first century, but seven being a, a number of completion. It's addressed to all churches. But there are seven prominent churches to whom seven letters are addressed in chapters 2 and 3, which we'll see in a few weeks. And so this document was not written as a work of abstract, systematic theology. It was written as a work of pastoral comfort aimed to grow the faith and devotion of these real communities. And that is vital in our reading of this text. So next we have a very common greeting in letters of this period. Grace to you and peace from, we're probably expecting God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's how nearly every Pauline letter begins in the New Testament. You can see other greetings like that. Now given the date of this text, it's one of the last to be written in the New Testament. The author may be familiar with some of Paul's letters. But what stands out is how this differs from the greeting that we find in the letters of Paul. So grace to you and peace from three entities are then mentioned. Three entities. Now we are reading this text as 21st century Gentile Christians with a lot of theological reflection behind us. This text was addressed to people in the first century who were familiar with Judaism. Christianity did not exist yet. It was not a separate religion. So when we read this, we need to remember that this language was being received by Jews and sometimes Gentiles familiar with Judaism. We need to understand this first historically, accurately, before applying it today. So I don't want us to inject modern theological ideas into this, because that's not how the original readers would have taken it. So I want to take each of these entities in turn, asking how would these first century readers have understood these labels? And then from that base, we can reflect upon it ourselves today. So grace to you and peace from, first, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is coming. Now, I just want to cite a couple of texts from the Old Testament because if you were to look at my margin here, there almost isn't space for all of the references to the Old Testament in this language. Revelation is probably the the most replete of all the New Testament books with Old Testament citations. They're everywhere, so let me mention a few. In Exodus chapter 3, a passage that we actually looked at this past year, Moses encounters God in a burning bush. Remember that story? And God commissions Moses to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt, and Moses is scared and he asks if, if the people ask, who sent you? What's the name of the God who sent you? What shall I say? And God says, I am who I am. 
or I will be who I will be. That's who sent you. That's what you should say. And we talked about that phrase being very interesting and evocative of many ideas. But it seems to be that God exists differently from the many other gods that Moses was familiar with in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Gods who had a certain specialty or were in charge of a certain region. God cannot be put in a box like that. God is the source of existence himself. So God is, he exists, he has always existed, and he will always exist. He holds all of time within himself. And any reader of the Hebrew Scriptures, upon reading this verse, would have thought, I think, of Exodus chapter 3. There's another text in Isaiah 43 that I think is worth mentioning. The prophet says, in the voice of God, "...before me no God was formed." nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. There are other verses in Isaiah in particular that I'll mention in a few minutes that refer to God being the first and the last. God's being as the source of existence for all of creation. So grace to you and peace from the one who is, was, and is to come in the ears of these first century Jewish and even Gentile readers would have been Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now next it says, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now some early Christian readers who are writing after the doctrine of the Trinity was formulated... They see this first reference that I just mentioned. They see Jesus Christ, which is the third one. And they think that the seven spirits has to be the Holy Spirit. But friends, thinking about the original audience and how they would have interpreted these images, it is not likely that that is the reference here. You'll see the Holy Spirit all over the place in the book of Revelation, at least the the foundation from which later Christians formulated ideas about the Trinity and the Holy Spirit. But right here, I think we need to ask, how would they have understood it originally? And all over the Jewish literature of the time and the Old Testament and other texts, there is mention of these seven archangels congregating around God's throne in heaven. Very, very common image. In the Qumran community where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, we found all these texts that talk about angels as spirits in this way. And you can see many references in the Old Testament to this. But let me just jump to two references in Revelation that clarify who these spirits are. You don't have to turn there, but in just a few chapters, Revelation 4, verse 5, there's this vision of the throne, the same throne. And it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. That's what it says. So there, the seven spirits are associated with fire, 
which you may say Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, is associated with fire. I'll look at one final reference in chapter 5, verse 6. Between the throne and the living creatures, whom we'll meet in a few weeks, I saw a lamb standing with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. As you read Revelation, you see these various seals or bowls uh, signifying God's action against evil. And there are these angels who are sent out into the world to carry out God's purposes, his mission. So all over the Old Testament, you can think of Job and the story in which Satan approaches God in heaven and wants to torment Job, and there's this council, there's this community of beings. You can think of the Tower of Babel, and God says to this group, let us go down and see what they are doing. And so from the perspective of these original readers, it seems that that is the reference here, grace to you and peace from Yahweh and from his hosts who are with him in heaven. Well, finally, Grace to you and peace from, verse 5, Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 1.1, the first few words, which I think was the original title of this text, we see the revelation of Jesus Christ. If there is any person of the Trinity who is focalized in this book, it is Jesus, the Son of God. The revelation is by Jesus, it is from Jesus, it is about Jesus. And so as we focus on this revelation, I want us to focus on Jesus. Jesus Christ is then labeled with many titles. And each of these titles brings us to passages in the Old Testament. We'll go through these briefly. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness... Now, a witness is a language from the law court, and it's somebody who testifies according to the truth, who uh, shares uh, descriptions of things that happened, describes reality in a way that is truthful. And a faithful witness is somebody who speaks accurately, who accurately describes the truth, but who also continues to boldly testify, even in the face of persecution, okay? Now, there is a text that features this phrase, faithful witness, in reference to the Christ, and that is from Psalm 89, and you heard part of Psalm 89 read. But speaking about David, it says, His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. The moon reflecting the glory of the sun, functioning to point us to the sun. And so in the same way, Jesus, this long-awaited son of David, is a faithful witness whose life reflects the glory of his father. But friends, this title is not just abstract, it is a model for these believers. They were being called upon to bear witness to Jesus in their daily life in a very hostile environment. And so they were tempted to not tell the truth 
so that they could avoid persecution. Jesus was a faithful witness. Next title, the firstborn from among the dead. There's a sequence here, friends. Jesus bore witness so faithfully that he was executed, crucified. And these believers reading at Revelation in these seven cities are facing such threats. Jesus died for his witness, but he was the firstborn from among the dead. Oxymoron, putting birth and death next to each other like this. But the firstborn in the Old Testament is a symbol of prestige. He would be the heir, a royal heir at that. And it signifies that there are more to come, more births to come. So how encouraging would it be to read this as somebody facing death for their witness to think Jesus died for his witness and was born again, the firstborn. If I die, I'll be raised as his brother or sister. We get language like this in Psalm 89 again. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Colossians 1.18, Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. Well, finally, the third uh, element in this sequence, faithful witness leads to death. Jesus is born, arisen from the dead, and then he is ruler of the kings of the earth. Testifies to the point of death going down all the way to Hades. He's raised to life, raised to the heavenly places where he reigns with his Father in heaven. That is what we can expect if we bear witness faithfully like Christ. Well, no wonder, next we get a doxology. A doxology is kind of like a benediction, a dedication that includes the word doxa, which means glory. And so we have that word here. But ending this grace to you and peace from three entities, ending that with Jesus Christ, it says, to the one who loves us, present tense, continual, who is loving us, has never stopped loving us, and who either loosened us or washed us, both words are present in the manuscripts, they sound identical if you read them aloud, who washed us or loosened us, from our sins by his blood. This is not talking about the seven archangels. It's not talking about God the Father. This is talking about Jesus Christ. Who loved us so much that he spilled his blood to wash us clean and loosen us from sin's grip in order to Make us into a kingdom, priests to God, his Father. Exodus 19, Moses says, If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Isaiah 61, you shall be called priests to the Lord, ministers of God. You shall inherit the land again, Everlasting joy shall be above your head. 
Imagine hearing this as a Christian in one of these cities, being forced to testify about your faith in Christ, seeing others who so testified being killed. Imagine the feeling you'd get upon hearing this from someone like John, who according to tradition was boiled in oil, killed. This is not abstract theology, friends. This is pastoral theology. Well, I've got to move on. Um, in verse 7, we have a common trope in this type of literature. It's called a prophetic oracle. You get two citations from different places in the Old Testament, and the second citation often amplifies the first one cementing everything that's said within the tradition of the Hebrew Scriptures. And we've seen passages in the New Testament that combine these two texts in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark. It says, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, and those who pierced Him will mourn over Him, will will weep over Him, Indeed, all the tribes of the earth. Indeed, amen. And it is possible that with these phrases, amen, indeed, amen, even so, amen, that this was supposed to be a responsive reading, read aloud in these seven churches, who knows. But this first uh, half of verse 7 is a citation of Daniel 7.13. Uh, And let me just read part of that text. We heard it read during Advent in the Sermon on Mark, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that was coming. But in Daniel uh, 7, the, the prophet Daniel receives a vision about this dream that the king had had, and he said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, who in that vision was seated upon a throne, and he was presented to him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Roman Empire was often called an eternal kingdom on inscriptions in this period. And these Christians were being told that all that matters is the Roman Empire and the emperor, so worship him. These believers are looking forward to a kingdom that is actually eternal. That will be established when the Son of Man comes in glory, and that is clearly a reference to Jesus Christ. He has come as a baby, lived among us, was crucified. And friends, that, that humble story, tragic ending, fulfills texts like this. The kingdom has already been established. The Son of Man has come and has begun to bring judgment upon all these evil nations. I have to move on. The second text cited is Zechariah 12. Another oracle looking to the future and promising restoration for Israel. And it says, I will pour out on the house of David a spirit of grace and mercy, 
so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as for a firstborn. It says, however, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. The arrival of the Son of Man, God the Son, Jesus Christ, would cause all those who pierced him, his enemies who crucified him, and many after, to grieve and mourn. And at that point, they'd experience God's judgment. So these early readers are thinking of their enemies, officials in the Roman Empire, who would face the judgment of God, and they would be lifted up to reign with Christ. Well, finally, we have this I am statement. And whenever you're reading, especially the New Testament, pay attention to I am statements. In verse 8, it says, In the voice of God, John's voice and God's voice blending at this point, and it seems in the voice of Jesus Christ, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and last letters of the Greek alphabet and everything in between. I encompass all of that, says the Lord God. The one who was, the one who is, and who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. So we can add a title to the three titles attributed to Jesus before. Jesus is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, and the Almighty One. And this word is Pantokrator, and I say it in Greek, friends, because there's a rich tradition in the Greek Orthodox Church with images of Christ, the universal ruler and king, seated next to the Father in heaven, a bit like this, but even more amplified. And imagine being a Christian in Asia Minor, persecuted by this emperor who says he's the Son of God. Imagine being given vision like this, to see Jesus the crucified one, as the true Almighty One. Well, friends, like I said last week, the function of Revelation is not to satisfy our curiosity about the end times, but to empower us toward faith and obedience today. Don't those words that I just explained, don't they do that? I feel like they do. How, though, how do these words edify not only these believers in these seven cities, but, friends, how do they edify us as Christians today? Well, like I said before, this revelation is all, all about Jesus Christ. It's from Him, it's by Him, it's about Him. And in this passage, we are encouraged to see Jesus with new eyes. I love how in that report from the Laverman family, there was language of renewed vision. It's the title of this sermon. These believers are probably about to give up on God, give up on Jesus, and give in to these demands from these officials. But they receive this text from John, this leader, this church planter. And they're encouraged to see Jesus in a new way. 
to see him as the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the Almighty One, but also the one who loves us so much that he spilt his own blood to loosen us from sin, to wash us and make us a kingdom, a real eternal kingdom of priests to his God. This is the Jesus that Revelation is all about. And so I want you to imagine being one of those Christians in Asia Minor, facing persecution for your faith. Imagine hearing this description, seeing Jesus in this new way infuses us with confidence and boldness. It fills us with hope. And so as we continue in this journey through the book of Revelation, let's allow this vision to change the way we look at Jesus. As we see him for who he really is, we are empowered to keep trusting, to keep trusting him through it all, whatever life brings. My hope is that Revelation would renew your vision and would give you life, helping you walk in hope and faith, even today. Even today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this message, this message of hope and life that is as applicable to us today as it was to these Christians 2,000 years ago. Give us eyes to see. Help us to interpret the chaos of our world through your perspective, through the prism of heaven. And through that, give us boldness to testify, even all the way to death, knowing that a blessed, royal, priestly future awaits. In Christ's name, amen.